again from the Word of God. Our brother Rob Brennan will be sharing with us. Rob is from Canada. He's an evangelist and works in camp work and other work specifically to some of the uh, indigenous people there in northwest Canada. I was told he's a good fisherman, both spiritually and physically. <laughs> Anyways, his subject today is Great Awakenings in History. Brother Rob. Maybe we could just open again with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful to be able to sing these words of this hymn. Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ as the, the Lamb, the glory of Emmanuel's land. And we just ask now that as we look into your word, we would have help that you would, by your Holy Spirit, move our hearts. We pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As has been mentioned, my uh, responsibility this afternoon is to take up the great awakenings of history. Uh, I'm hoping that my message, the Lord has laid on my heart, will move your hearts. Uh, if it doesn't, that's because I haven't heard uh, Scott's message yet on preaching that moves the hearts of the people of God. So uh, we'll just have to work that out. Maybe that should have been at the beginning of the conference rather than halfway through. Uh, it is a privilege to uh, take up this subject. Uh, it, it is a great subject for sure. And I'd like to begin uh, turning to the book of First uh, Peter to your favorite verse. Yeah, what is your favorite verse, First Peter? I mean, we all have one, don't we? 1-7, 3-15. Any others? You like to, uh, I, I, I guess we like to try and anticipate the direction a speaker is going. Do you like to do that? Uh, when David started out, he told that uh, story about the great awakening amongst the Jesus people. I thought at some point David was going to say, and I was a hippie. Uh, but he didn't say that. Uh, he talked about his sister. So uh, you wonder, what am I thinking about here? Well, I'm thinking of a great verse from First Peter. Uh, but I don't know how many times it's on our list of the great verses. It comes from uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. And Peter says this, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? As I was uh, working through uh, this subject, I, to keep things clear in my own mind, I thought of awakening or great awakenings as a, a, a general term. I thought of uh, the word revival as something specific. I think Webster's would agree with me that revival is this concept of something that's living, that's faded off or near died, being revived. Uh, awakening uh, seems to be a greater word. Um, there were many great awakenings in history. Uh, the Internet has long lists of them, and you can read them, and various brothers have uh, gone through and, and listed what they thought were the greatest four or eight or ten. Uh, so you try and find some that uh, you could look at, and, and we could glean truths, things that would help us today. And so some of the ones we like to consider, of course, would be the one Peter was involved in, that's Pentecost. We've already been reminded of that, of Acts chapter 2. That was a great awakening. Uh, 
awakening this concept of the Spirit of God being poured out. That's what happened at Pentecost. Uh, the lives of Christians, of those who are following the Lord, were, were changed. Right? We, we understand that. I mean, we look at Peter's life before uh, Pentecost, and he had some, some serious uh, discouragements and struggles in his life. And so something happened at Pentecost. He had a boldness that he never had just a few chapters before that, the end of the Gospels. And so his life was, uh, was revived. Uh, it included the awakening of a great nation of about 3,000 souls. Our brother David reminded us of that. It led to about 5,000 and multitudes of people awakened. And so, uh, as we think about um, uh, Peter, we think about this concept of great awakenings in history. Some of the ones we would like to consider uh, have to be maybe uh, 1850, you know, those years. Uh, those were great years in North America. Uh, Dr. Edwin Orr says that uh, in 1857, in those years in, in North America alone, a million people were added to the church. He said, but realistically, probably two million people were converted to Jesus Christ. He said there was probably a million people sitting in church pews that were saved during those revival or those awakening years. Uh, to show that uh, in today's uh, perspective, that would be the equivalent of about 25 million people in North America coming to Christ in one year. So we would agree this morning or this afternoon that we've never seen an awakening like that. We haven't experienced that. Uh, we haven't experienced an awakening like uh, Mr. Evans experienced in 1905. Welsh, the Welsh revival. They say 100,000 people. He saw 100,000 people in Wales come to Christ. And so, of course, we could read his book and and we might wonder about some of his theology. Yeah, say we don't agree with some of the things he said, and yeah, I, would, I would agree with that too. But we couldn't argue with this idea that whole towns were changed. They said uh, judges would show up to court on Monday morning. There were no cases to try. Uh, police, no crimes committed. Or they said... Uh, they spent their time moving people, the multitudes of people, traffic control back and forth to the prayer meetings. Uh, we say that if we think about uh, here, 1857, they say that um, prayer meetings went on in New York City every day at lunch. Jeremiah uh, Lanifer seen, uh, they said, 6,000 people gather in New York City to pray every day. Uh, they say in Portland, Oregon, the downtown core, 200 businesses had a pact that they wouldn't do business between 11 and 2 so people could go to the prayer meeting. We haven't seen anything like that. Yes, we, um, we work in evangelism, right? We're glad to work in evangelism. Uh, evangelism, uh, I think, rather than uh, good days and bad days, it's probably easier to find by uh, some years are better than others. Is that not true? I mean, some years you see a few people saved, and then the next year you see them off the rails. That's not what an awakening is. I mean, we look at them and we, we, we say that, uh, I mean, the, the preachers couldn't stop these people from coming to Christ. <laughs> they were getting saved before the preaching started. Saved out on the street. 
saved all over. That was in, in North America. We'll consider that one. Um, we'd like to think too as well about uh, Great Britain. One of my favorite preachers, uh, uh, biographies to read is obviously uh, D.L. Moody. I like lots about D.L. Moody. Um, his simplicity for one thing. One of the things I was encouraged with is um, uh, D.L. Moody was asked, or he was asking somebody, how do you spell Philadelphia? F-I-L or F-E-L? And before the brother could answer, he says, don't worry. I'll make it so they can't tell whether it's an E or an I. And uh, I, I can relate to that. that that's D.L. Moody. Now, he was a simple, he was a humble brother. But, you know, he preached to two and a half million people in Great Britain in 1873. He came back to North America and he preached Madison Square Garden, where Madison Square Gardens is now, 14,000 people every night. Town, city after city, thousands of people. D.L. Moody used to send people out of his meetings. Say, I see you. You've been here all week. You've been to all these meetings. You've heard the gospel. Why don't you go out in the street and make, give your seat up to somebody who's standing out there who's never yet heard of Christ? Sending people out of his meetings. So we say, we haven't seen anything like that. And so I want to make sure in my mind that I'm clear of what a, an awakening is, this general idea. Uh, I'm clear in my mind of what a revival is. And I think that's what Peter's talking about. Peter is giving us the means. The end is revival. The means is judgment beginning at the house of God. If we're going to see a revival in this country, we want to. We hear these stories of men who would say they'd rather have served one year when a revival was happening or an awakening than a lifetime in the gospel for fruit and for results in what God was doing. So we say we want that. How does it happen? Well, there's a process involved. Peter's laying that out for us. Um, he saw that witnessed in, in um, Acts chapter 2. There were things going on. And so we want to turn back to the um, book of Joel and see if we can't find some principles that we can simply apply in our own lives. I, I don't know if it makes a difference, but um, uh, the two clocks aren't quite the same. The one I'm looking at and the one most of you are looking at is not the same, Jack, just so you know, and Dale as well. I don't know if you've got your own clock. But anyways, uh, we'll, we'll try and get back on uh, schedule. So we want to read a few verses in the book of Joel. We want to begin in chapter 1, verse 14. Consecrate a fast call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house, the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep before the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say, Among the peoples, where is their God? Twice, Joel suggests or says to us, Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. Now, we've been reminded already today more than once the value of prayer in an awakening, in a revival. Um, I would like to suggest that what Joel is talking about is a special prayer meeting, not the assembly prayer meeting. I think that's important. Um, I don't know where all of you are from, but in our limited opportunity to get around to assemblies in our area, the smallest meeting in the assemblies typically is the prayer meeting. Is that fair to say? Uh, Joel is talking about as a sacred assembly, a special prayer meeting. Our brother David reminded us of that in his own life. It would suggest that we could look at um, these awakenings that we've uh, mentioned at the beginning and we could see special prayer made on behalf of a, of a great work of God. I mean, we talked about Jeremiah Lanifer and, and this concept that he uh, uh, gave out, they say, 20,000 tracts inviting businessmen in New York to come to a prayer meeting at lunch. He saw these men walking around disillusioned and discouraged and he thought they need to be able to pray. So we had a special prayer meeting, 20,000 uh, leaflets, and he, he got, I'm not sure what the percentage would be, he got himself and six others, so it's quite low, uh, but it built. You say 6,000 there, 6,000 in Philadelphia, all over North America. That's a great story, special prayer. That's what they prayed for, and they prayed for a long period of time, more than six months, it seems, that went on before the awakening. I like... Um, rather than that, I, I like that story. I like a uh, story associated with D.L. Moody in Great Britain in 1873. See, in 1873, D.L. Moody went to Great Britain and saw this huge work, but he said really the foundation for that work was set a, a year before. He'd uh, uh, traveled to uh, Great Britain for a rest and a time of study. He went to a prayer meeting on Wednesday night and uh, met a, a brother he knew who invited him to come to his church to preach on Sunday morning. D.L. Moody accepted the offer and he went. Uh, he arrived at this brother Lessie's church and he said the hearts of the people were ice cold. He said, in fact, it was a, it was a battle for him to preach. No interest 
Uh, he went home, uh, had lunch with his wife, uh, came back that night, and he said it was like there was a holy hush to come over the crowd. It was a clear working of the Spirit of God. Um, after his message, he said, if you want to become a Christian, stand up. And almost the whole congregation stood up. So he thought in his mind, they don't understand what I'm saying. If you want to get right with God, come forward. And almost the whole congregation came forward. He said, if you're serious about this, come back tomorrow night and meet Brother Lessie. Because he wasn't sure what was happening. Oh, he and his wife Emma uh, started to travel Great Britain. And uh, two days later, apparently, they received a telegram uh, from... Uh, from this brother, that, that more people had come on Monday night than were at the meeting on Sunday night. So uh, Mr. Moody came back and they started uh, 10 days gospel preaching. 400 were converted and added to that church. That was um, the basis, or it was from that work, that he got invites to preach in Great Britain. Uh, he actually found out after uh, the difference between the meeting in the morning and the meeting at night. In uh, Brother Lessie's uh, church, there were two sisters. And um, one of them, named Marianne, was bedridden. She was a devout member of Lessie's church, but she couldn't attend any of the meetings. And so she was often discouraged as to why the Lord didn't allow her to uh, come out to any of the meetings. And so uh, the Lord laid on her heart that although she couldn't go out and share her faith, she could pray for faith in the lives of those in her church. So she started to do that. Interceding every day on behalf of others. One day she was reading in a, a newspaper from North America of a man doing a great work in evangelism named D.L. Moody. And she said, Lord, could you please send D.L. Moody to my church? So when her sister came home that day and said to her, guess who preached at church today? She said, who? Her sister said, D.L. Moody from North America. The sisters had a holy hush come over them. They knew that was an answer to prayer. Special prayer. Um, that's what we're thinking about. I think that's what Joel is talking about. And we could think of lots of examples of that. But we don't have time. Another point. Joel mentions at least twice tears. Anguish of soul. Charles Finney makes this point. He's got a chapter in his book on the travail of the soul, the interceder. I don't know how much tears you've wept on behalf of the state of your nation. I don't know how many tears I've wept. I know it's not a lot. But Joel mentions weeping. They all did it. You know, when uh, Mr. Moody was uh, preaching in Great Britain and this great work was going on, Dr. Dale, a great man of God himself, a great preacher, went out to assess 
Mr. Moody's preaching. See how his preaching was stirring the hearts of people. So he sat and listened to him for three or four days and then he came up to Mr. Moody and he said, clearly what's going on here is a work of God because I just can't see anything linked between your preaching and the results. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Moody laughed heartily. He said, would you have it any other way, brother? We wouldn't. Uh, One of the things as we, we look at these great awakenings, they weren't led by leaders. They were an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And of course, men were raised up through these awakenings. But, but Mr. Moody didn't lead it. He was just an available servant. And so we see that. He, he, he shed tears. I, I wrote this down. Uh, it was said of Mr. D.L. Moody that he never preached without tears. Once once someone criticized him after hearing him cry during his message, he walked up to Moody and said, Mr. Moody, it is unfair for you to cry during your sermon, for after all, you are only cheating people into heaven. Moody replied, Sir, my prayer to God is that I can cheat a million souls into heaven before I die. You know that General Booth was saved during one of the Great Awakenings. And there's an illustration linked with his life of a, of a captain in the Salvation Army writing to him and, and, and questioning the, the state of the work, saying we haven't seen any conversions. And apparently, General Booth sent him a telegram with two words, try tears. Our brother David read from Ezekiel. There's a point in the book of Ezekiel where there's a man who goes through and and marks certain people for blessing. Everybody else is left for judgment. All the people that are, are reserved for blessing have one thing in common. They all wept over the state, the nation. Mr. Moody wept. All of these other men they wept. You know, we thought about Peter. Fifty-five days before Peter preached that effective gospel message in Acts chapter 2, you know what he was doing? Weeping bitterly over sin and his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Special prayer, we could see that in all of the awakenings. We could see tears linked in the lives of those who were involved. Another lesson, I think, comes from a man who was involved a little earlier. Uh, He was in the 1700s. He was a man who... um, biographer says, rode 5,000 miles a year on average on horseback for 54 years. Say that's the equivalent of 12 times around the globe. He preached 15 messages a week. It's more than 40,000 messages. He read 
they say more than 1,200 books in various subjects. He wrote 200 of his own. He had critics, for sure, with regards to his theology. Uh, One biographer says that um, by the time John Wesley's critics got out of bed in the morning, he'd already done his personal devotions for a couple of hours, preached his first message and was on horseback going to his next meeting. John Wesley said, God has more to do in me than through me. If we're going to see a revival, an awakening in our day, it's going to happen in this room. I'm pretty sure that's what John Wesley would say if he was here. If a man like that, who had that kind of service associated with his name, understood this principle, what the Lord was doing in his life, that's what revival is. It's my heart. We've thought of that already. We've been reminded of that in every message. Revival in my own life. And so we want to think about that linked with, um, with the stories we've been considering. Uh, we've read from uh, Peter. Uh, Peter was a, a, a great, great man wasn't perfect. That's why many relate so well to him. He uh, quoted from Joel in his preaching. And Joel was a great prophet. Joel had a great message. He said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What I find interesting about that is that, you know, Joel, they tell us, was a contemporary of Jonah. And so I've never really been able to understand why God would send Jonah to Nineveh rather than Joel. I mean, I would think if you have all these people, a million people crying out to God and repenting in sackcloth and ashes and saying, who knows if God will be merciful? Seems to me the perfect message for them would be Joel's message. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In fact, we read this in verse 12 of chapter 2. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and kind. Joel's message would have been perfect for that great awakening of a million souls. But I think what's happening is that um, the Lord is working in Jonah's life. That's why the book of Jonah has that character that it only could have been written by himself. The worst person in the book of Jonah is who? Jonah himself. I mean, that wasn't written by his friend. It was written by him. And he's explaining how in these uh, great awakenings, how the Lord works in the life of the individual. I think that's consistent with Scripture. I don't think that Peter was the most qualified to preach at Pentecost. I mean, 55 days before he denied the Lord Jesus. In some of his preaching in the book of Acts, the beginning, he, he, he says in his preaching, you denied the Holy One, the just. You denied Him in the presence of Pilate. You can imagine somebody's got to say, Peter, I, actually I think you were the one who, who did that. Peter says, you're right, I did do that. I've been washed and I've been made clean. I've been restored. I've been revived. 
And so we see that uh, we see that Jonah probably wasn't the most qualified to go to Nineveh. But in John Wesley's language, the Lord has more to do in me than through me. And so you read the life of D.L. Moody. Dozens of cases how he was inadequate to be used. I mean, I, I love this. He used to uh, read his Bible, and when he came to a big word, he would stop, make a comment, and pick up on the other side of the big word. So he never read the big words. The people knew that. You know what? They loved him. They loved his heart. The Lord was working in his life. D.L. Moody was a learner till his death. And that's what we want to do. We want to come here to be changed. And that's his story. That was Jonah's story. The book of Jonah is how God changed Jonah's heart. I think we could continue this over and we could turn to... um, And we won't because I don't have to. You know the story. Acts chapter 10. Now, as we work through the, uh, the, the book of Acts, we know this, that... In Acts chapter 8, this, this man named Philip has this opportunity to go up and see a great awakening in Samaria. Do you remember that? Thousands of people saved. He's right in the middle of it. He has an opportunity to reap where the Lord Jesus had sown some years before. And there's this great awakening. And in the middle of the night, he's called away out into the desert to minister to one lone man from Ethiopia. Why? God has more to do in me than through me. I mean, it's possible. Uh, Philip, the evangelist, interestingly enough, the only man ever called an evangelist in Scripture. I think, hey, look at me. Lord says, Philip, i got a lesson for you to learn down here in the Gaza Strip. So he leaves. You know, you could read that, that Peter and John were actually had been to Samaria, saw the work, and they were already headed back to, back to Jerusalem. You know, the Lord could have sent them through. I mean, John must have been a pretty good gospel preacher, I would think. I mean, he knew the gospel in a nutshell, at least. So, uh, the Lord doesn't do that. He sends Philip. Uh, chapter 8 ends. With Philip living in Caesarea Philippi. And so, uh, years later, when the uh, man named Cornelius is interested in the gospel... He could have hypothetically been living next door to Philip. The Lord doesn't send Philip, does he? He goes one day's journey to Joppa. And certainly we see uh, Jonah and Peter and Joel and Joppa connected. I'm going to suggest to you that um, Jonah was Peter's favorite book. It's not hard to believe, is it? Just simply for sentimental reasons, was the name of his dad. So, uh, see this, the Lord, the Spirit of God goes down to Joppa and gets Peter to come to share with Cornelius. Why? Well, although Peter had preached whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, I think he was thinking in a Jewish context. Whichever Jew calls upon the name of the Lord... And what the Lord was trying to teach Peter is that Peter, whoever means whoever. And you remember, that's the struggle that, that Peter goes through. He said, Lord, I, I've never unclean, you know, this whole concept of the sheet lowered down. 
And so the Lord has to send Peter. Although he'd been used at Pentecost in a mighty way, the Lord is still working in Acts chapter 10 in Peter's life. Because as a leader, the Lord has more to do in us than through us. And that's the third point. And then the last point that we see in the great awakenings of history is this idea of walls being broken down. Um, I started to prepare for this message. Uh, Jack uh, gave me a few pointers and it was very helpful. He said, read through some stories and and to find things that are similar and, and, and use that to build your messages. That's, that's great counsel. So I started on Charles Finney and, and I read, and Charles Finney, although he's raised Presbyterian, he's not a Calvinist. He's a zero-pointer. He's, he's emphatic against Calvinism. I'm like, that's it. That's the key. Uh, oh, and then another point. He doesn't um, write his messages out. Twelve years, he never wrote a message. Uh, occasionally, if, it would, if the Lord really used him, he said, after the message was done, he would make an outline of it just so he could remember it so he wouldn't forget it. But never wrote a message. I'm like, that, okay, that's good. So uh, zero-point Calvinist, and, um, and he never wrote his messages. And then I read the story of Jonathan Edwards, who was used quite a bit before um, Charles Finney. <laughs> and he's the opposite end of the spectrum. You know that, right? Not only did he not write his message, oh, he actually read his message. <laughs> Fear and trembling, sinners in the hands of an angry God. As my friend Jabe says, overwhelmingly not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is God in the hands of angry sinners. People, did God use it? Yeah. It's not the man. An awakening is an outpouring of the Spirit of God. That's what it is. And so if somehow I can get out of the way... God can use me. That's what he did in Jonathan Edwards' life. And Jonathan Edwards was a great man. I mean, if you're interested in uh, Native American work in North America, Jonathan Edwards was, was involved in that. I mean, he was a good friend of David Brainerd's. David Brainerd had chiefs from uh, north of North America, that whole corner. Hundreds would come and listen to him. And so it wasn't that. It's true that these walls were, were broken down, that that this concept of an awakening being this tide that comes in and unites us. Listen, it's way bigger than just the group here. You know, like somehow I can get along with my Calvinist brother. He's a five-pointer, I'm a zero-pointer. It's not that. It's not just getting along with Christians who agree with me in my own assembly. I'm saying it's way bigger than that. And to suggest to you, it's you know, this might be hard to handle, but um, even our Pentecostal friends, they've seen awakenings. I know people, uh, you read this on the internet or you read this in books, and they, brethren, have gone out of their way to show you what is and isn't a true awakening, and they don't like to say, although they give, give uh, you know, uh, Wales and the Welsh revival, they, they, they have to concede that one, but they struggle with this one in California in the same year. That brother's book, the account of what the Lord did in Los Angeles in 1905, starts with him burying his daughter for the cause of Christ. It's a little girl. It's a very moving story. 
he said some great things. I'd like to read one to you if I could. We may cut ourselves off from God by our spiritual pride. Well, he may cause the weakest to repent and go through to victory. The work in our own hearts must go deeper than we have ever experienced, deep enough to destroy sectarian prejudice, party spirit, etc. on all sides. Frank Bartleman, his diary, written as a warning to the Pentecostal people. Say, we can agree with that, I hope. Can't we? Or can we? Maybe we can't. Um, this is one of the struggles I had in, in reading through the Great Awakenings is that the brethren experienced some things, for sure. But they weren't always in the middle of it. Um, D.L. Moody would say that his preaching was never the same after meeting and hearing Harry Moorehouse preach in Chicago, those seven messages. Now remember, he never heard the first two, but he heard five of them on John 3, verse 16. He said his preaching was never the same. He never saw the Bible the same after he met Harry Moorehouse. So Harry Moorehouse was associated with the brethren. He had an influence D.L. Moody's life. He was involved with Ira Sankey and D.L. Moody when they were doing the work in Great Britain. And yeah, we've seen, uh, as we read these stories, and I'll tell you, I, I read uh, John Nelson Darby's biography twice last year, and it's a, it's a great read, for sure. I love John Nelson Darby. Looking forward to meeting him. But I would say this, that while the world was preparing for the Great Awakening of 1850, do you know what Mr. Moody, or sorry, what Mr. Darby was doing? Settling the great Bethesda question. And you know what that was about, right? That's what divided the work from closed, exclusive to the open brethren. Um, we want to be reminded that this, this great awakening that we want, it's, it's going to join us if it happens to the body of Christ. And it's not the 1400 so-called meetings that we're familiar with in North America. The body of Christ is one. And so if we're going to uh, work, we're going to have to work and pray for revival, the body of Christ. And we want to see assemblies plan. I believe that. I, I see it in Scripture. Convinced. But we want to see an outpouring. And, and when these outpourings happened, every group of the Lord's people was blessed. And that's what I hope we want to pray for and see in our day. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word, which changes us. Father, that your word is living, it's life-giving, it's powerful. Father, we desire to See your word by your Holy Spirit work in our lives. Father, show us those things that need to change in our hearts. Father, that we might see a revival in our own hearts today, in this group, and that that might lead to an awakening in our day 
in our countries. Father, we're aware of many of our loved ones, many who are not ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Father, change us that we might be a blessing to others. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.